The poem says, Human voices wake us, and we drown. But I've made this podcast with the belief that human voices are what we need. And so, whether from a year or 3,000 years ago, whether poetry or prose, whether fiction or diary or biography, here are the best things we have ever thought, written, or said. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome back to The Great Myths. We are nearly done, I think, with the tour I've been able to do over the last year uh, into the Celtic myths. And before we do leave them, I wanted to take a sort of detour and not focus on the myths themselves tonight, not the stories themselves, but on the scholarship. And I think I've said a few times here that... um, when I've brought something up or a question has been raised, I've said something like, oh, we really need to find someone who has a degree in all of this to answer this question. And I actually think that I have found that person. Uh, his name is Mark Williams, and he has written an amazing book called Ireland's Immortals, A History of the Gods of Irish Myth, published by Princeton in the United States. And I would encourage anyone out there to go and get a copy of this book and also to get a copy of a book that has been out since 2003. And somehow um, I never knew it existed until I got a copy of Mark Williams' book. This other book is called The Celtic Heroic Age, Literary Sources for Ancient Celtic Europe and Early Ireland and Wales. I think that if you get the books that Penguin has put out, uh, Early Irish Myths and Sagas, uh, translated by Jeffrey Gantz, and the handful of books that uh, Oxford World Classics has done, the um, Dooley and Rowe edition of the Tales of the Elders of Ireland, and the uh, whatever issue of the Tyne Bolconia that you can find, you'll have a good uh, place to go with uh, also adding this new book, The Celtic Heroic Age, uh, edited by John Carey and J.T. Koch. Now, Mark Williams seems to have done something miraculous with this book. The first half of it is a history of the gods of Irish myth, although the word gods is very important since uh, there's an awful lot that he can't talk about if he's just going to talk about the gods. Um, There's not a a whole lot, there might not be anything at all, except in passing about figures like Cuchulain and things like that. Uh, But the second half of the book, which I haven't gotten to yet, is about what happened afterwards to the Irish gods. He says something uh, kind of amusing that you don't really realize, uh, just on page seven of his introduction. He says, almost certainly more people have now heard of the divinities, the Irish divinities such as Lug, the Morrigan, and Menanon MacLear, than at any previous point in history. And the second half of his book, as far as I can tell, is what happens after uh, the medieval age, on up through Yeats and the Celtic Revival, and on up even further than that, I think. I see mentions of Seamus Heaney towards the back and to see how these gods, how these stories were interpreted, misinterpreted, uh, rewritten, uh, remade, and continue to live right now. Uh, as far as I can tell, too, Mark Williams has has uh, just as much of a proficiency being published by Princeton with all the footnotes as he does in more popular works. And... Um, We are, I think, just quite lucky uh, to have someone this uh, serious, but as well 
uh, just this uh, enthusiastic, this genuinely enthusiastic uh, on this subject. It's a very readable book, um, Ireland's Immortals, and I will just be going through parts of it in this episode. It's a fairly long book, and the, about the only thing I can get to here would just be the general overarching statements that he makes, but even those uh, came as a great surprise to me. And so I will try and get to them here. We'll just be going uh, from uh, page to page as the notes go that I have made here. He says uh, at one point, actually this is page one of his introduction or his preface, um, though their origins lie in the Irish veneration excuse me, though their origins lie in Iron Age veneration of earth and water, the Irish gods' affinities are not with nature, but with culture. Never depicted in early art, and long cut off from pagan ritual, they float, worldly and refined, through the imaginative space of Irish literature. And I think that's basically more true of, of the Irish gods than even of the Norse. Even the Norse uh, myths, as far as I can tell, and I might be proven wrong because that's the next topic I'll take up in the great myths, um, even those are written by a people who may at least halfway still have been involved with the ritual, with the cult involved with these, with these gods. The wonderful story of Helgi the Lean, who says something to the effect of um, when I am on land, I worship Jesus, but when I am on the sea, I still pay my respects to Thor. Um, and by the time we have what we call the Celtic myths in and the Irish vernacular literature, uh, not just in the 8th and 9th centuries, but um, on up through uh, 12th, 13th, 14th, 15th century, uh, what we have is something that is so far removed, as Mark Williams says, from the cult, from any sense of people living in a in a ritual way, in a day-to-day -day sort of veneration way with these gods. And that is something that he stresses in many places. This is what we know of the Celtic gods, not what we think we know from modern neo-paganism, not what we think we know from the eloquent, but um, in their own way, rewritten versions of the myths from Yeats and Lady Gregory and many others, or really of anybody who picked these things up over the centuries and sort of molded them however they would. Um, what we have are, what we know about them comes from written texts, written texts that came from Christians and not from the believers themselves. And for me, anyhow, this is less of a uh, thing to bemoan as it is to just be fascinated by that this is not only how uh, religion, however you want to define that, works, it's also just how uh, literature itself works. You see what the next note I have says here. Well, this is uh, an interest or, or an important thing that surprised me right away. Uh, he mentions that uh, two stories, the earliest saga narratives fe featuring native supernaturals are stories called The Adventure the Adventure of Conley and The Voyage of Bran, both of which are short and both of which date from around the turn of the 8th century. And I'm fairly certain that both of those tales are mentioned in that book uh, that I recommended, The Celtic Heroic Age. So keep those in mind that uh, nearly all the stories, all of the ones that I've shared here um, in the series of Celtic myths, is from well past the 8th century. Um, let's see. And I should say, just as a, as a side note, as a, a very grateful note for me, is that uh, within um, 
within Ireland's Immortals is about a 10-page pronunciation guide, which I wish I had had before I started doing this series on Celtic myths. It's the best pronunciation guide to these things that I have ever seen. Let's see here. At one point he mentions, um, or he's quoting another scholar who, uh, who is condemning the, quote, ongoing production of speculative prose in the face of the inescapable truth, the inescapable truth, that we have no reliable historical evidence which can attest to the nature of, pre, of the pre-Christian religions of Ireland. I'll quote that again, because that is important. Um, the inescapable truth that we have no reliable historical evidence which can attest to the nature of the pre-Christian religion of Ireland. Um, Mark Williams makes great use of Ronald Hutton's books, which I may have to make an addendum to the Celtic myth series uh, later on once I get to his books. And I think he also mentions Miranda Green's work. I have mentioned Miranda Green's work as well in these episodes. And uh, one of, of course, I can't remember the name of it now, one of her books, I think it might just be uh, a, a book called uh, Celtic Religion. Let me get the title because it is an amazing book. Um, let's see here. A Symbol and Image in Celtic Religious Art. That is the book that I used in many, for many of my poems many of the related poems in my book, uh, Bone Antler Stone. And it, it is the book that gives the clearest account that I've seen outside of, I guess, of the super scholarly stuff that I would not be able to follow, of what that day-to-day -day life of propitiation and worship may have been. But it's important to say that uh, when she says Celtic religion and Celtic myth in that sense, uh, she means it as uh, continental European. All of that, all of uh, her book, as far as I remember, uh, follows stuff that is on the continent because there is so little, or as this footnote said, actually no evidence um, connecting the later vernacular literature to uh, the archeological finds from uh, half, cent uh, half a millennia or a millennia or more backwards in time. Now this is getting to, into chapter one here from Mark Williams' book. He says this, the earliest written evidence for native gods comes from early Christian Ireland, not from the pagan period. This is a pivotal fact which must be emphasized. Christianity did not entirely consign the pagan gods to the scrap heap, but the consequences of its arrival were dramatic and affected Irish society on every level. Pagan cult and ritual were discontinued, and a process was set in motion that eventually saw a small number of former deities reincarnated as literary characters. Christianity, intrinsically a religion of the book, enabled the widespread writing of texts in the Roman alphabet. Some of these have been transmitted to the present, with the paradoxical upshot that we owe our ability to say anything at all about the, quote, personalities of Ireland's pre-Christian gods to the, to the island's conversion to Christianity. And he goes on to say that this chapter, the, the first chapter of the book, uh, focuses on the period from the 5th century down to the late 7th century but tighter historical brackets can be put around the conversion process itself. The Christian religion was present in Ireland from at least the early 400s, certainly among British slaves and their descendants, though there may well have also been communities of Irish converts in the areas of the island that had been most exposed to influence from Roman Britain. It is notoriously difficult to pinpoint when a population group can be decisively said to have exchanged one religion for another, but during the 500s, the church hierarchy 
was legally established as a privileged order, and monasticism, that is, Latin education, and ecclesiastical learning thrived. By the year 600, therefore, we can speak of Irish society as already converted on the level of hierarchy and institution. The public worship of pagan gods by high-status individuals had probably come to an end by the late 500s, but occasional, increasingly marginal manifestations of non-Christian religion seem to have continued until the turn of the 8th century. It is not until that point that Druids, the magical religious specialists of Irish paganism, finally cease to appear in legal texts as a going concern and can be taken to have disappeared from Irish society. It is also worth remembering that all such markers are public and collective. The realm of personal conviction, how people behaved in their homes and felt in their hearts, is irrecoverably is irrecoverably lost to us. And a footnote here is important. It says, uh, one scholar points out that <clears throat> the historical St. Columba, born around the year 520, into a dynasty in the far northwest of Ireland, is represented as converting the Picts to Christianity, but never uh, depicted as converting his fellow Irishmen, presumably because they were, by then, largely converted. And Mark Williams continues, around the year 700, roughly 300 years after the conversion process began, that is when pagan divinities began to appear in a vibrant literature written in Old Irish. Two questions immediately present themselves. Why should a Christian people be interested in pagan gods at all? And what was the relationship between the gods whom the pagan Irish had once venerated, and the literary divinities who thronged the writings of their Christian descendants? That is a good question, indeed. Um, these, this early chapter is filled with wonderful stuff, but to get the most out of it, I will skip some and go on to uh, the next section here. Let's see. Um, yes, this is one of my favorite topics as well, and it's nice that he brings this up too, the topic of rivers and bogs. I also thought, actually, since the last uh, two, I think, episodes in The Great Myths was taken up with the, uh, the tales of the elders of Ireland that I mentioned, as well as, let me see, I want to get the name right because I will forget it otherwise. Of course, now I can't find it. Yes, uh, the tales of the elders of Ireland and the Levor Gavala Eren. Um, I find it interesting that uh, I've devoted two episodes uh, one each to those works, and Mark Williams does the same. So I, I like to think that, at least in my uh, non-specialist way, that I am on uh, the kind of track that these more expert people are as well, seeing the importance of these things. Um, on to bogs and waterways. He says, um, and this is about... Uh, uh, a section about uh, early or archaeological evidence for uh, early Irish religion. He says, uh, there are also hints that rivers, bogs, and pools were important in the religious beliefs of the pagan Irish, though Iron Age deposits of artifacts are strikingly more rare in Ireland than in parts of Britain for unknown reasons. An instance of the enigmatic quality of Irish Iron Age archaeology in general, Ireland can excuse me. Ireland can nonetheless boast one of the most spectacular of these finds, the Broider Hoard, which was discovered in 1896, buried in heavy agricultural land near to the Loch Foyle in County Derry. 
The original deposition was made close to the water's eastern edge, but the shore of the lake has shifted over the millennia. And this find includes not only the most splendid torque ever uncovered in Ireland. And a torque, of course, is that wonderful uh, uh, thing you wear around your neck. Looks like a tire iron you wear around your neck um, that you can also see in um, in that cauldron whose name is uh, escaping me, of course. Everything is escaping me tonight. It's good that I'm reading uh, from a book. Um, not only the most splendid torque ever uncovered in Ireland, but also a miniature golden boat complete with tiny oars. And that is the uh, that boat is what is on the picture of the American edition of Seamus Heaney's uh, 1991 book called Seeing Things. Um, the items seem to have been fashioned and perhaps deposited as well in the first century BC. Depositions such as this suggest a belief at the time that they were made in that they that they were made it uh, that there was a belief at the time that they were made in supernatural beings associated with water, and it should be emphasized that this is all that can be extracted with confidence. In another instance of looking to later literature to explain archaeology, though, scholars have long speculated that the hoard, this hoard, was a ritual offering to the Irish sea god Mananon because old Irish texts associate Loch Foyle with stories of an inundation and an encounter between the god and a band of human mariners. All this is not to say, Mark Williams says, that connections drawn between medieval written texts and pre-Christian archaeology are of necessity misguided, but it is simply to say that they must be considered tentative and that it is dismayingly easy to build castles in the air. And that gives you an indication of the kind of skepticism uh, that Mark Williams will have throughout the book. It's a healthy one, so that you know that when he says something with a little more certainty to it, uh, that he means it and that he can uh, back it up. He goes on to say, because the archaeological evidence emerges as open to several interpretations, we can use it to outline only the most important aspects of just how the pre-Christian Irish regarded their divinities. Briefly, there were probably a great number of these related to specific places, peoples, and to the natural world. They were considered worthy of reverence and perhaps as seen of artistic depiction. Some of them seem to have had associations with water, though whether they were supposed to dwell in, under, or through it is unclear. They could be propitiated and must have been imagined as having uses for the gifts, including animal sacrifice, which human beings offered up to them. Some of this picture can be rounded out by comparison with Gaul and Britain. And I have a note here on the side of the page saying, look at how quickly uh, he has to go from imagining what uh, the gods in Ireland were like, trying to fill out that picture with the evidence that he has. Look how quickly, just in one paragraph, he has to say that perhaps part of this picture can best be rounded out by a comparison with Gaul and Britain. But he says even then, one final caveat about the archaeological record should be considered before we move on. It points to the centuries immediately before the conversion began as a period of economic contraction, agricultural decline, and very likely some degree of political upheaval. Therefore, it is possible that late Iron Age religious values and beliefs reflected, the, reflected such turbulence, so that far from descending changelessly from an immemorial Celtic past, they may have been in considerable flux. And as I've said many times here, uh, there is no religion, I know of no religion anywhere uh, ancient, modern, uh, whatever you want to call it, um, that descends cha changelessly from anything. Um, all religions are in a period of considerable flux. I suppose 
the only thing to consider is just how considerable that is, high or low. That is just the way things go. And so with the turn from Irish archaeology to Celtic Gaul and Britain, written data enters the picture, largely in the form of inscriptions, though there are also important Roman descriptions of Gaulish, Gaulish religious customs, that is, in modern-day France and Gaul. Once again, useful parallels between the religious cultures of these societies and that of Ireland can only be drawn if we stick to broad outlines. And if we do, three features emerge as likely to have been shared between Gaul, Britain, and Ireland. The first is that water courses seem regularly to have been venerated as divinities, usually as goddesses, though there are a few river gods. The second is a welter of local variety, with an enormously large number of named deities attested, though most of these clearly fell into a limited number of overlapping functional types. The warrior, the trader, the hunter, and the healer, for instance, a sort of uh, early version of might and magic, or dungeons and dragons. You have your types. Uh, thirdly, neither Gaul nor Britain provide us with evidence for a native pantheon in the Greco-Roman sense. And this is clearly related to the localism that was just mentioned. This last detail presents a puzzle, for it has to be acknowledged that old Irish literature, as we shall see, does, in fact, provide a loose family of supernatural beings, looking something like what we think of as a pantheon from Greece and Rome. A deity named the Dagda, literally meaning the good god, forms the center of gravity within the structure, just like the Roman Jupiter, Deus Pater. And, like Jupiter, he has several children, and he is conspicuously highly sexed. There are a number of ways to resolve this discrepancy between the local being varied and sort of uh, not organized and having what we would think of as a pantheon. On the one hand, pre-Christian Ireland might have independently developed a pantheon, while the Gauls and the Britons did not, though this seems unlikely. Ireland was, and remained after its conversion, a decentralized, rural, and politically fragmented society with a thinly spread population of limited mobility, a situation unlikely to foster the development of a national family of gods. More persuasive is the second possibility, and that is that those members of society who could move about the country and elsewhere, you would assume, um, that they were the ones who thought in terms of a core pantheon, this would mean that those who maintained themselves via a professional skill, known as es dana, the people of art or talent, and perhaps especially druids as the island's religious elite. It may be that this is what we find reflected at some removes, at some removes indeed, in the later literature, which does have a striking emphasis on figures associated with skills or culture heroes, as they're called. People tied to the land, however, would probably have focused more on local divinities of fertility. It is possible that a similar situation obtained in Gaul, and this would explain the sharp contrast between Julius Caesar's famous description of a micro-pantheon of five Gaulish gods, for whom he used the Roman names Mercury, Mars, Jupiter, Apollo, and Minerva, and the clear epigraphic evidence that Gaulish deities actually numbered in the hundreds. We know that Caesar spoke with a Druid, and that he had a pressing need to understand the attitudes of the, power of the powerful in Gaulish society. His account of the gods and Gauls, though, may reflect solely the beliefs of the learned, mobile elite. And that, uh, in about two pages, uh, blows the mind. Um, a few pages later, he uh, Mark Williams says this. Um, let's see.
Here we are. Uh, there is good evidence from the law tracts and the penitentials, um, including 7th century stipulations that Druids were no longer to be accorded the privileges owed to members. Yes, so this is talking about 7th century, the demotion of the Druids. And he says, in Anglo-Saxon, if Anglo-Saxon England is anything to go by, after the rulers of a population group converted, the public worship of pagan gods probably took 40 to 50 years to disappear, following a brief period in which Christianity and paganism coexisted. In Ireland, this scenario was probably repeated many times in different social groups. As Elva Johnston points out, the island's political diversity meant that conversion must have been an untidy affair, by which I take to mean more untidy than Britain was, and, quote, not simply the process, excuse me, not simply the process of convincing one important dynasty or ruler who made some kind of grand decree and everybody tried to follow it. Uh, she thus aptly describes Ireland's conversion as, quote, both fast and slow. Fast, because once the people began to change their religion, the process could take place relatively speedily, but slow, because there were so many peoples, so many areas, uh, so many situations, uh, so many disparate uh, people spread all around to convert. Let's see. And here, and every now and then, I, I, I have a lot of respect for Mark Williams for mentioning what this, uh, for, for taking time out throughout the book to, to bring up what this, uh, what his findings, what kind, what kind of reaction his findings have from modern day pagans. And this is just one of them. Um, when this material has been presented to various audiences, uh, he says, modern pagans have sometimes suggested to me that the reason that particular deities were remembered into medieval times is because they had been particularly beloved. I suspect, he says, instead, that an Irish deity had to be charged with some ingrained political, ideological, or geographical importance, preferably in combination in order to survive in some form after their cult had been discontinued. By its very nature, conversion siphoned specifically religious significance from the pagan gods. But it is clear that the converting Irish could in some cases sift the cultural cachet of a deity in association with the ideology of kin kingship or with the native systems of knowledge, for example, from pagan worship, thus retaining after images of the gods for a secular sphere. And a few pages further on. Now he's talking about um, the wonderful monument in, uh, in Newgrange um, that dates, uh, I believe the earliest was uh, about 3300 BC is what the caption to the picture says. And we remember from the stories that I've read here before the sheath mounds, the the fairy mounds in Ireland, and the assumption is is that uh, places like Newgrange um, were were the things that uh, sheath mounds became later in the literature, and this is just uh, about a page or so of what Mark Williams has to say about these things. He says overall it looks highly plausible though at present unprovable, that there was a late Iron Age cult focused on supernatural beings, whether gods, deified ancestors, or the spirits of the dead, associated with the mounds of the Boyne Necropolis, which is uh, New Grange, and perhaps others as well. In the case of the former, it seems likely that at least a few Romano-British visitors paid their respects to the local spirits of an imposing sight in their usual way, perhaps bringing to Ireland a, quote, retro-pagan fondness for making offerings at ancient monuments. But if the Boyne complex had been so important, 
it remains difficult to explain why there are relatively few signs of earlier ritual use in a purely Irish context. And this is a sad thing you, you want to believe, as uh, we do later on in his chapter on the sheath mounds. You want to believe that, all right, you're going to take, uh, you're going to make all of this into literature, right? The, uh, the uh, cold-minded scholar is going to take all of this back and say all of it is literature. There is no connection to the archaeology. But when you turn to the archaeology, not only, um, not only are you going to separate it from the literature and say it had no connection to the literary gods, but you're going to say that what the archaeology seems to show is that what we associate uh, Ireland with is actually itself a borrowing, uh, in this case, um, uh, from Roman or British religious practices. He says, overall, there is no way to ascertain how close the literary gods are to whatever beings, whatever they were, that were associated with the mounds in the Iron Age. But archaeologists in particular have found the temptation to connect the two irresistible. New Grange itself is the classic example. It is always the preeminent sheath mound in the literature, and one with distinctive personnel being associated with the Dagda, the top god of the literary pantheon, and his son Wengus. The archaeologist and great excavator of the site, M.J. O'Kelly, wanted to trace these two all the way back to the gods worshipped in the Neolithic by the Boyne Complex's builders, but this is an extreme view. You can imagine why someone would want to do that. Um, the, just the experience, the personal experience I had over the course of a few days of hanging out in the uh, tombs in Orkney a few years ago, or just hanging out in Scarabray, um, the rich and uh, spontaneous and almost irrepressible desire to connect these things uh, back and back and back to ancient this and that um, was so powerful. I can only imagine what that, what that feeling must have been like to someone who spent years on these sites, or I guess the, the correct term would be seasons, excavating these sites, living with these sites, waking up to these sites, and wanting to uh, fill in all of the gaps um, yeah, it must be a, a tremendous experience. Um, but he's, uh, Mark Williams says that is an extreme view. Uh, more likely is Catherine Swift's suggestion that the cult of the Dagda and of Wengus as gods of Newgrange took shape in the late Iron Age and under Roman influence. Earlier, I set out the possibility that the very existence of a pantheon of sorts in medieval Irish literature might be due to influence from the neighboring island, as if, and if uh, another scholar is correct, then the core kernel of Irish mythology begins to look rather less indigenous than has been traditionally thought. And just a small note here that seemed worth quoting. Two things are striking about the literary people. Two things are striking about the literary people of the Sheath Mounds. They are human-like, and there are a lot of them. They are not separated from humanity by a chasm of difference, but are closer and lower than the classical deities. And Mark Williams simply asks the question, were such human-like powers a genuine idiosyncrasy of Irish paganism? If you assume that, uh, what I just said, that the core and kernel of Irish mythology is less indigenous, is this fact, just that they are more human-like, that they are, quote, lower than the classical deities, is that something that uh, reflects a more indigenous uh, idea? And a page further on, um, let me see here. As he's quoting from, let me see. He's quoting from a story, I believe, from the late seventh century, 
where, uh, where a scene in the story is a case of mistaken identity that inaugurates the native supernaturals as a literary theme in Ireland. It occurs in a saint's life, that is, encountering someone strange and that strange person leading you on to some sort of an adventure. It first appears in a saint's life more than a century after the consolidation of the Irish church. And he says, its importance lies in the fact that it contains in embryonic form a series of crucial cultural strategies in relation to the gods and the people of the sheath mounds, and that those strategies revealingly already seem to be presupposed. That is, uh, you're presenting them to an audience and you don't need to explain it. They know what you're talking about. They seem to be presupposed even at this early date so that uh, you can assume that by the late 7th century, even if there aren't any more genuine pagans running around, um, that perhaps the way they told stories uh, of the gods has maybe survived and made it into um, a Christian context. Um, and that's the, the interesting thing, is that uh, it is the... It's not any detail, you might say, that ends up being something that you can trace or track or find. Uh, what it is, is a manner of storytelling that is the real evidence um, for such a connection further back in Irish paganism. Um, if there is a connection at all, it seems to be not in the details, but in the manner of telling the story, which is something that I quite love. Um, and here he begins to talk about what we mean by the, the monks and the scholars who first started writing this stuff down. And this is important because it's so easy in our day today to want to separate uh, uh, Christianity from paganism or whatever it is that we like from whatever it is we don't like and imagining there's no cross-contamination or uh, communication at all when there always is. And um, this, is, uh, this is how Mark Williams puts it. The scholarly consensus is that the uh, vernacular sagas, the vernacular stories, that their authors were not mere passive transmitters of pagan myth and ancient tradition. Rather, they were creative authors who hybridized their native inheritance with a vast body of classical and Christian learning, thereby engaging with the issues and the demands of their own times, not just with some purported past. And he says, first, it is abundantly clear that a secular literary tradition in Ireland or in Irish could only have emerged in a Christian context and that the Bible remained at all times the wellspring and the core of Irish literacy. This is because all literary composition, vernacular and Latin, depended on alphabetic writing and book production. This was only available via the technology of ecclesiastical education, which was embodied by and enabled in the communal, the intellectual, and the literate environment of monasticism. It is also clear that the literature that we have was produced in within elite communities of learning, and that these were based in monasteries, though their personnel were not necessarily all ecclesiastics. Such communities appear over the horizon of history in the late 500s. Secondly, those responsible for vernacular composition are normally identified as the honored class of secular learned professionals known in Irish as filid, Habitually rendered as poets in English, the filid were, in fact, a great deal more than just poets. Not only did they play an important educational role, but they were also genealogists and confidants for secular dynasts, acting, as Elva Johnston's words, in Elva Johnston's words, as the custodians of communal aristocratic memory. So that when I was going through... Uh, the Tales of the Elders of Ireland or other sections where you have these memories of the landscape of uh, 
the, the, the lore of place naming and was talking romantically about this, um, it may well be may well be that it's just some uh, Irish uh, Domesday book of uh, talking about uh, who owns what. You never know. Uh, communal aristocratic memories. And he says, the question of how one should imagine the Philide allows me to set out the scholarly debates under consideration here. Let's see. He says, one view, often called the nativist, dominated the study of early Irish literature until at least the late 1970s, and it held that the native learned orders and the ecclesiastical literati had formed distinct and even rival groups. Often, the Philide were regarded as having been continuingly quasi-pagan in some nebulous manner, and thus invested in the preservation of pre-Christian material. The nativist view accordingly allowed for an archaic origin for the themes and the imagery of the vernacular narratives, and at the extreme end it was suggested that the Philide could be imagined as the continuation not only of pre-Christian Ireland's intelligentsia, but of its religious elite, that is, Christianized Druids, in touch with a supposedly enduring, and you would, you would think the, the term unchanging would be put in there, an enduring oral tradition. Jonathan Wooding has astutely pointed out how the nativist view laid stress upon Ireland as the, quote, keeper of a very ancient culture, and so reflected the cultural politics in the earlier part of the 20th century, furnishing the country's literature with primal, independent, and oral origins. Excuse me. And you can see, even if this theory is wrong, um, if it is uh, wrong in a scholarly or historical sense, you can see how something that is an idea that is wrong, but nevertheless powerful, can have such great uh, seeds, it can lay such great seeds as the Celtic revival and many other things. Um, both views depended upon a concept of Irish identity as something living in the mouths of the people, thereby retaining its integrity despite cultural onslaught. And that also, I guess, assumes that people who are living their everyday lives also don't change, even though they're being surrounded by the, these, this new religion and uh, the people who are uh, spreading it around. Uh, that is also a thing that just doesn't happen. The mouths of the people aren't any more uh, pure or, or neither are they better retainers of integrity than, um, than uh, the communal aristocratic memory you would think of a, of a learned class. Uh, the nativist view allowed that plenty of pre-Christian belief, conventionally vaguely defined, could be extracted from the medieval literature. The literary afterimages of Ireland's gods were therefore taken to be a reasonably good likeness of the deities actually worshipped by the Irish Iron Age. In the Iron Age, this can be reassuring. This can be a reassuring thought for lovers of mythology because, as seen in chapter one, if the literature is put to one side, our picture of the gods is dispiritingly, dispiritingly threadbare. The nativist position, in any simple form, is though long out of date in the academy, but I'm glad he spent that paragraph talking about it, even though it is out of date. Although many readers will recognize that a version of that nativist view continues to be recycled by popular writers on Celtic religion. The opposing view, sometimes called the anti-nativist, directly challenged these assumptions. Anti-nativists argued that there had been a fusion of the learned orders early in the conversion process, suggesting the Philid and the Latin literati had soon formed a single monastic Mandarin class, steeped in commentary upon scripture Far from being a rival community of learning, the Philid were now seen as submerged within and identifying with the ecclesiastical Latin literate establishment. Uh, they knew what they were doing and they were uh, inside their, um, 
their ivory towers already. The argument was backed up with powerful evidence for Irish learning. Uh, Irish learning's deep and early engagement with classical and biblical tradition. A number of vernacular texts, long thought to be archaic, even pagan, were actually shown to depend upon ecclesiastical material. It was argued that the themes of early Irish literature were mediated and even created by an undergirding Christian vision. Anti-nativists have tended to regard attempts to retrieve a pristine mythology as a blind alley. They emphasize that the native gods themselves show signs of having been thoroughly interfused with ecclesiastical and biblical concepts. And I think later on, uh, Mark Williams has a great time uh, showing how the god Lug, I believe, um, uh, may well have uh, just been uh, a version of uh, King David, or at least uh, they took what they had of Lug and they backed him up with what uh, they knew from the Hebrew Bible about King David. Um, aspects of anti-nativism have long since become a basic part of the intellectual toolkit for scholars of medieval Ireland. One benefit has been a sharpened focus on the details of early Irish literature as we have it. Lapses in the saga's logic or flaws in their composition can no longer be ascribed to the garbling of oral tales by unsympathetic churchmen. That said, though nativism and anti-nativism are apparently clear-cut and opposed positions in the theory, in practice each has allowed for shades of gray as Thomas Charles Edwards has written, early Ireland exhibited both a strong sense of its own identity and a willingness to embrace the wider world, the two things at the same time. The two orientations were not mutually exclusive, and in fact, uh, most orientations, you might say, outside of social media and cable news, um, which present them as mutually exclusive, most orientations are not mutually exclusive either in the academy or outside or in any subject at all. Um, looking back at the decades of sometimes acrimonious debate, one scholar excuse me, points out that the nativist scholars were hardly monolithic in their views and in fact that they accepted as self-evident a lot of what the anti-nativists insisted that they rejected. Anti-nativists in turn have not always been intellectually consistent. As one who came of age after the anti-nativism had attained the status of an orthodoxy, Mark Williams was born, I believe, a year after me in 1980, I can empathize with Wooding's description of excavating an Iron Age grave as a liberating feeling, precisely because such a monument was indisputably constructed, quote, by people who believed in a primal Celtic religion and whose cosmology was unaffected by Christian notions. The thought that pre-Christian Irish beliefs are irretrievable is so ingrained that it is surprisingly bracing to be reminded that those beliefs and the people who held them actually did exist. The bracing thing actually for me is that perhaps that they, not that they existed, but that they aren't as reachable as we may have thought. They may not be reachable at all. And so in that case, it is the poets and even the modern-day pagans who uh, should sort of be allowed to do what they, to do what they will. Maybe uh, they will have a, uh, a non-scholarly avenue back to that stuff, and that is sort of what I was trying to do with some of my poems, too. Um, Mark Williams goes on to say, however, the most crucial thing to emerge from the debate is the sheer complexity of the backdrop to the vernacular literary culture. There are no easy answers. There probably aren't even easy questions. A degree of clarity is gained if we only use the label pagan to mean involving the worship of non-Christian gods. The word itself is deeply misleading if applied to most of the dimensions of native culture which retain significance after the conversion, especially that of vernacular learning. No one suggests that the Philid carried on worshipping pagan deities. Elva Johnston proposes 
that we think in terms of interlocking intellectual elites, imagining neither a nativist gulf between indigenous and ecclesiastical men of learning, nor an anti-nativist fusion between the two. In her brilliant encapsulation, the Philid were neither druids in disguise nor monks in mufti. We can sensibly picture the Philid as bridging the ecclesiastical and secular worlds, sharing their fundamental intellectual and religious assumptions with their clerical colleagues. Philid, Johnston writes, take their place firmly within the Irish intellectual milieu, even in its monastic context, and can be seen as joining secular and ecclesiastical interests, largely because, although they could be clerics, they formed a basically secular learned class strongly connected with the royal courts. And one last quotation here. Um, these texts therefore present us, and this is from the last page of chapter two, these texts therefore present us with a residue of pre-Christian material transfused with ecclesiastical modes of thought. The pagan gods have not so much been reclaimed as turned inside out. The processes of repurposing deities and discarding them were clearly intertwined. It was essential that former divinities were, to some extent, cut off from their roots before they were suitable for inclusion in the products of the monastic scriptorium. The reconfiguring of native supernaturals as ideological personifications compatible with Christian learned culture amounts to a kind of conscious forgetting, the creation of an alternative literary universe. It is worth asking, however, how literal, how carefully circumscribed this alternative universe really was. Did it reflect anything beyond the bounds of the monastery? James Carney saw in these texts an effort to find a place for the virtually ineradicable Irish belief in fairies or otherworld beings, implying that these beings were widely credited with a certain amount of genuine existence. Carney may have been right. The association between native supernaturals and tumuli that is the uh, that is the mounds that uh, became the sheet mounds, you might say, was genuinely pre-Christian. Yet it is impossible to extract from texts such as these the forms in which that belief may have persisted amongst the laity. So clearly are these tales. So clearly are these tales and others like them, the products of exegetically trained minds experimenting with fiction. Now, especially with a, uh, a last sentence like that, talking of exegetically trained minds experimenting with fiction, um, you might say that what I've spent the last hour doing is uh, sharing some pretty dry stuff. To me, this is immensely exciting, and um, and it doesn't tell me any. It doesn't. In the end, it doesn't surprise me. Um, I was going to read a great deal more from this book, but it's taken me an hour to do this already. And I fear that if I read much more, I will hear from Princeton University Press. So I will leave this here from uh, Mark Williams' book, Ireland's Immortals, and would encourage anyone out there to go and find it um, who has an interest in this subject and find his other books as well. But um, the thing that is exciting about this to me, the thing that is also comforting about it is to me, is that it... Uh, in its own roundabout way, in its, in uh, in the way that uh, I've heard it in many other put in many other contexts, this one just being the Irish one, is that uh, is that we should not think of our monuments of literature, let alone our monuments of scripture, whatever they are, as being these pure, untainted, changeless uh, things that were put down or inspired or uh, scribbled down from a vision way back there. And the only reason they should mean anything to us now is because they have reached our ear uh, as they were after the first moment they happened. Um, what we've learned tonight uh, about the Celtic myths is that uh, what we know of Celtic myths doesn't, uh, in the in the vernacular liter literature, doesn't have uh, an easy match to 
what we know of the archaeology. The archaeology that we know doesn't seem to point to a simple indigenous uh, way of belief, but it was something influenced by Greece and, or not Greece and Rome, Rome and Britain. Um, to the people who wrote these things down, it wasn't uh, uh, some sort of um, some sort of pop culture thing going on in uh, in the in the rural lands, but it's the product of learned people uh, and learned church people as well. Um, some version of this exists everywhere, and to me, the great gift of it is to see. Uh, all the beauty that has come out of it, all the meaning, all everything that has, everything that has kept itself going up until this very moment. It has happened in spite of a process that we today seem to see uh, as imperfect, but the beauty, as always, is in that imperfect process. So the podcast software that I use will not allow a single continuous segment to go on for longer than one hour. So I feel like uh, with what I just said, that's the first time I've gone to one hour, that I sort of got rushed in the end. So I just wanted to say calmly again and give credits to what I was just reading from. And that is a book called Ireland's Immortals, A History of the Gods of Irish Myth by Mark Williams. He also has written a, looks like a slightly more popular book on the subject called The Celtic Myths That Shape the Way We Think. And just to make sure here, right, that is published by Thames and Hudson. So you can imagine, it just came out in September of last year, that that book will also be pretty beautifully and lavishly illustrated. And... I really can't praise Ireland's immortals enough. I think it's very easy coming across or coming into a topic like this to go into a university library and look at all of the uh, green hardbacks from the Irish Tech Society or and see that many of them are older than the 60s. Many of them will go back to the 30s and 40s, I think. It's very easy to look at the Penguin Classics, the Oxford World Classics, even the poet who died only last year and offered his own version of the Tyne Bolcunia, uh, Thomas Kinsella. It's easy to look at all of these things and see that the scholarship, or to think that the scholarship um, is coming from a previous age, that kind of a thing, uh, which is an easy way of thinking to get into uh, dealing with something like uh, Celtic myth where there is such a vast space of time covered and so many things that happened back there in the beginning or in previous genealogies of ages going back and back and back. And that is one reason why um, it was so exciting to find this book by someone who is basically my age, early 40s, who is so enthusiastic and so excited and uh, so... Uh, deep into this stuff in a scholarly but also um, just a rich and humorous and uh, just a very human way. And the other great gift that Mark Williams has given us is that uh, not just the normal notes that I take from a book like this, but I've made a separate section of notes simply uh, from the books and the articles that he refers to. Um, I would say that Ireland's Immortals is worth it just for the bibliography and the notes to see where he has gotten things, where there are uh, better or newer translations of certain stories that, um, that uh, regular mortals, you might say, outside of the academy might only be able to get through interlibrary loan and things like that, as well as, I'll mention again, the wonderful book uh, from uh, John Carey and J.T. Koch, The Celtic Heroic Age, Literary Sources for Ancient Celtic Europe and Early Ireland and Wales, uh, probably the largest collection uh, of modern translations of uh, many of the literary texts. And so 
With that, I will uh, leave you with all of these things to ponder for tonight. Any comments or suggestions for readings I should make in future episodes can be emailed to Human Voices Wake Us, the number one, at gmail.com. Links to each work used in this episode can be found in the episode description. If you enjoy Human Voices Wake Us, you can subscribe wherever you find your podcasts. The music here is Duke Ellington's Arabesque Cookie.